Okay, good morning. And uh, what a beautiful day. And nothing much greater we could do on this beautiful day than looking into the gospel and thanking God for our mutual salvation. Let me read, well, let me read a couple verses here and then we'll pray. Philippians 1.27 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Eric and I have made that our signature verse for CIC Radio. This is where we have true Christian unity, we're striving together for the faith of the gospel. Some this morning have asked me about ecumenism. And there's really no reason that I can think of to join some national association of anything. Okay, because they create one basically for some good reason and then they start splitting and fighting and they can't... Uh, the, the unity that we have is grounded in the gospel, not in associations. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see how we can be those who are thankful because of being recipients of grace. May we always give you all the glory, and may we indeed be striving together for the faith of the gospel with one heart and one mind. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are moving along to the issue of fellowship. Now, in mine, I took a slide out. You may still have that slide. But I'm moving here. We talked about this two weeks ago. I don't think I got a chance to emphasize it as much as it deserves. There will be some who will question if there even is such a thing as means of grace. And I put this verse up here as our kind of reminder about that before we go into directly teaching about fellowship. Here it says, God gives greater grace. Okay, grace is something given by God. And here it's tied to some attitude. And I think that God shows us in scripture how it can be by his grace that we have this particular attitude. James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Notice the antithetical parallelism. Opposed to proud, gives grace to humble. So one of the five solas of the Reformation is to the glory of God alone. The proud one refuses to give God the glory. If we realize that it was God's doing that we are in Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1, we shall be humbled and we shall give him all of the glory. You know, Deuteronomy is really a sermon, or it's of the genre sermon, lots of sermons in Deuteronomy. And one of them, Moses tells the people that when things are going good, 
Don't say in your heart, it was by my hand and my might that I got this wealth. Why? Because God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Now, we're going to look up some verses about that. And we may have touched this a couple weeks ago, but it bears repeating. Norm, could you look up Deuteronomy 8.2? And Clitoris, Deuteronomy 8.16. Mike, you look attentive. Psalm 106.7. Brian, Psalm 77.11. We're going to see how God gives grace to the humble. Let me read the other verse I have on my slide. 1 Peter 5, 5 repeats this, which is drawn from Proverbs 3.31. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let me tell you why I'm doing these two verses. Means of grace... The teaching about means of grace and the practice of means of grace is designed by God to humble us. Okay? We need to be humbled. The default position is works, and the result of works is pride. It might be condemnation. Either you keep failing and finally you lament that, or you think, well, I did all these things. Remember the, the guy that told Jesus, I kept all these from my youth up? So Jesus came up with something else. Yeah, and then he went away sad. He wasn't willing to humble himself. Okay, Norm, Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years... That, you, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. To humble you and test you. <clears throat> so God used the wilderness wanderings to humble the people, and God does give grace to the humble. Yes, All right, Deuteronomy 8.16. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, that your fathers had not known in order to humble and test you so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. Okay, so here it says that he might humble you, that he might do good for you in the end, test you, but to do good in the end. See, God gives grace to the humble, right? When we realize that we're utterly dependent on God for everything, that humbles us. The manna humbled them. What happened to them when they grumbled about the manna? That was bad, right? Sometimes judgment came on them. They were full of pride, and they were thinking we were better off without God. We were better off in Egypt eating the food of the Pharaoh, forgetting that they'd cried out to God when they were in Egypt for deliverance. And so the manna ends up being an important issue, and it comes up again In John chapter 6, the people in John 6 had the same attitude as the wilderness wanderers. Oh, God gave us manna. Well, what do you have to give us? My flesh for the life of the world. Well, they didn't like that. 
They didn't like God's provision. Means of grace humble us because God does what we cannot do, and he gives us the means to be humbled so that we might receive grace. Remember, I started this months ago. Whenever I don't know when I started teaching means of grace, but many months ago, maybe a year ago, I started with Naaman in the Old Testament. Lecture number one was Naaman. Remember Elijah told Naaman what to do? And he was ready not to do it. Why? Pride. You got it right. Well, we dip in the Jordan. We got better water than that where I'm from. I think I'll just go home with my leprosy. And his humble servant said, well, my master had the prophet of God told you some great thing. Would you have done that? Oh, yeah. Well, why don't you go do the simple thing? Oh, okay, that makes sense. And so he humbles himself, goes to the Jordan. What happened? He was healed. Dear beloved saints, we need to humble ourselves and come to God on his terms. And realize that when that does happen, it was God who humbled us. Remember these passages we were reading. Uh, Psalm 106, 7, I think that was you, Mike. Our fathers in Egypt did not grasp the significance of your wonderful works or remember your many acts of faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Okay, they didn't remember what God did. Forgot his hesed, kindnesses, and rebelled. If we think we can do it ourselves and we're not remembering what God did for us, And some might say, well, why do you keep doing the same thing? For instance, today is Communion Sunday. Why do we keep doing the Lord's Supper? Haven't we done that before? We're remembering, do this. Jesus commanded, imperative in the Greek, do this in remembrance of me. We're humbling ourselves by obeying God and remembering that we were lost, wretched sinners, but by the grace of God. But sometimes people forget or they have other plans and they don't receive grace. It says here, God is opposed to the proud. God opposes the proud. My dear brothers and sisters, it's really hard to make progress when God's opposing you. Are you, <laughs> you know, who could you ask about that? Was there a guy in the Bible that God was opposing and he kept trying to go? Balaam. Remember the donkey? Balaam, the mad prophet, kept going and the donkey had more sense than he did. God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Um, Psalm seventy-seven, eleven. I think that's you, Brian. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Okay, remembering what God has done, who we were, wretched sinners, what he did, 
saved us from his own wrath, how he did it by doing it all for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. The result of that, he brought us to himself, is designed to humble us, and God gives grace to the humble. So the means of grace, Acts 2.42, are given so that we might walk with an attitude of humility all of the days of our life from the time we come to Christ on. Always remembering what miserable wretches we were and how good and gracious God is. Peter talks about this. And we have a lot of passages about it. It says, I'll let me read a few myself for the sake of time. Hebrews 10.32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Well, that was uh, Hebrews 10.32. Revelation 2.5, if you want to jot it down, Eric taught on this. A command from God. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at the first or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. We are obligated under divine command to continue to walk in humility. So we should sing songs, read scriptures, and encourage one another in ways that would remind us of the gospel and remind us of God's grace. Understanding is, and I hope this is sinking in for all of us, can't you see how wicked it is to teach some doctrine about how great we are? Because it's working against the gospel. Revelation 3.3 3. Remember what you've received and heard and keep it. There again is a command to remember and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you, and you will not know what hour I come to you. Yes, Brian. I was going to say, um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with Ray Comfort, but his, uh, his Way of the Master series of uh, witnessing to people is the uh, law to the proud and... Uh, the uh, grace to the humble. Yeah. So he doesn't when he's, he's taken with, idea it's taken from that. When he, yeah. So he doesn't he doesn't actually get to the good news of the gospel until the people have already humbled themselves and have seen that they are uh, in fact sinners. Okay. It says in Zephaniah three twelve. I'll just read this. You want to jot it down? I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. What do a humble and lowly people do? They take refuge in the name of the Lord, speaking about God and his character and self-revelation. Here it talks about younger being subjected to the elders. Thomas Schreiner says this, the younger in particular then should submit to the leadership of the elders. We've seen elsewhere that Peter understood submission as the responsibility of believers to those in positions of authority. The purpose is not to encourage obedience no matter what the leaders might say. For if the leaders give counsel that contravenes God's moral standards or violates the gospel, 
then they should not be followed. Read Luther, what he says to the Pope. Um, I was just going to, uh, I was going to say that uh, to, to remember is, to me, I think, is not just an act of mental recall, because that's, again, a thing of pride, but it's a reorientation of where one is at and uh, a submission to who God yeah. is. A very good point. Uh, Paul, right? Paul makes a good point. We can recall, were you ever a slave in Egypt? Well, I think so. Yeah, they can recall. But this is talking about taking to heart the significance of it. Okay? I really was a lost sinner. I really was bound to hell. I really was full of self. I really was a blasphemer. And God showed mercy. And in an instant, at the preaching of the gospel, I was shown that I was going to hell, and rightly so. Good point. Schreiner says, nor is the verse suggesting that leaders are exempt from accountability before the congregation. We've already observed that elders are admonished not to use their authority as dictatorial rulers, but are to serve those under their charge. Conversely, those who are under leadership should be inclined to follow and submit to their leaders. They should not be resisting the initiatives of leaders and complaining about the direction of the church. So it says in Proverbs 16, 18, and 19, Proverbs 16, 18, and 19, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. I was a Christian for about a year, and we were in a car heading to a Bible study, and the topic came up about somebody who backslid, and this one guy says, I will never backslide. And everybody else in the car, I don't know how we even knew this. Don't say that. That's really bad. He did. Uh, You know, it isn't what I, remember the I wills, the five that Satan uttered in Isaiah 14? That's not going to keep you from sin. It's humbling ourselves that does. Our fellowship is with Christ and therefore with his people. Let's go. To add back to Acts 2.42 to set the stage, and then we'll go forward into what Christian fellowship is. A little clue. I want to give a foreshadowing. Christian fellowship is not bingo. <laughs> oh, you didn't know that? <laughs> All right, listen. <laughs> How about a meat raffle? Is that Christian fellowship? They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we spent months on that, and we've showed how that's a means of grace. And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, we're going to look at fellowship. Now, they moved along now. Let me talk about what they did right away, and then some little controversies about that. They sold property and helped people that had need. And their inclination, I believe, was to fulfill the law of Christ. We don't believe in lawlessness. 
And we do believe that Christ is the lawgiver. And Paul quoted Christ that was never quoted in the Gospels. In Acts 20.35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Galatians 6 verse 2 says that we bear one another's burdens, we fulfill the law of Christ. And so I believe in a sincere concern to fulfill the law of Christ. They sold possessions. And they did help people with need. Now later, the church in Judea was impoverished. And some scholars believe because they had divested themselves of all capital assets. Of course, there's other reasons. There was persecution, and they were rejected by their Jewish brethren. They were somewhat isolated in that way, so it made it difficult to make a, a living. But if everybody divests themselves of their capital assets, eventually you just have more people who are in need, namely everybody. Okay? But I think the inclination to share and bear one another's burdens was an expression of the law of Christ. They wanted to please their Lord. If Christ died for someone, that person is precious to him. We should care about that person and be willing to take practical action in their time of need. All right? Later, when the issue with Ananias and Sapphira came up, Remember, Peter said, well, this property was in your power. You didn't let me. Their sin was to lie to the Holy Spirit. Not that it was a sin to have capital assets. So there is the law of Christ and the love for one another. Now, who has a Bible? Who wants to read a verse? (laughs) Okay, Mike, you can do it again. John 13, 34 and 35. And then Robin, Romans 12, 10. 13, 35? Yeah, well, it's 34 and 35. Okay. You said a verse. Well, then you read two. <laughs> You're going to charge me extra to read two? <laughs> I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must, also, you must also love one another. By this, all people will, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Absolutely. There's the law of Christ. That, remember Jesus said there as he read, I give you a commandment. Christ commanded that Christians love one another and care for one another. So I believe that they were simply <laughs> obeying what they learned from the apostles' teachings albeit maybe not in the wisest way. Okay, you do your verse, and we'll take the mic back to Greg Fredrickson. What's that? The next verse is Romans 12.10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Okay, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. So we give honor to every part of the body. Yes. Yeah, Bob, can you uh, kind of explain the difference between social justice and, like, Acts 245? Okay, social justice is a misnomer. Social justice teaching, at least as I heard it in seminary, was support liberals no matter what. (laughs) 
Okay. And if the federal or state or some government agency owns everything, there'll be more justice in the world. I, I reject that. God's justice is revealed in the law and the gospel. Justice and how we treat one another as individuals is an important ethic in the Bible. What the liberals at the seminary did with their sleight of hand was de-emphasized or obliterated how we actually treat one another as Christians and suggested that whatever problems society has are going to be resolved if we just vote for enough liberals or Marxists. And then they pounded us with guilt. That was chapel. Guilt mongering. If you were a white Euro male, you were so evil and guilty it was probably pretty close to hopeless. Okay, I'm a white Euro male and I'm guilty and I'm evil, but how, where, what's repentance look like? Vote for liberals. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well said. Yeah, and by the way, <clears throat> I was at Bethel, it was all guilt all the time. It wasn't yeah. even in chapel, it was now in the classroom. But um, okay. I was just going to mention that one thing we've distinguished before on the radio is between descriptive and prescriptive passages. Yes. And one thing that we see in Acts 2.42 is it's obviously described what the early church was doing. But what's interesting is that list, the four things, the apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, those four things are commanded elsewhere in the New Testament epistles. But when you go down to Acts 2.45, where else are we commanded to give everything that we have? We're not. Exactly. So, yeah, in fact, yeah. if you look at the commands, like in 1 Timothy 6, is that we're to be generous. Exactly. That's There's the There's no doubt that the Bible commands Christians to be generous. And by my comments about the social gospel at seminary, I'm not suggesting that Christians aren't to be generous. And even to show kindness to people that aren't one of us, they didn't know what to do with me because I resisted their teachings and at the time was the pastor of an inner city church and these noble-minded liberals were all out in the wealthy suburbs. So they had no clue what to do with me because here I was a conservative, but I was doing what they believed but weren't doing themselves and I didn't think liberalism was going to help anybody including the poor in the inner city. That the gospel had the answer, not government. And when people came to the gospel, it's amazing how much changed in their lives. Yes, Eric. Um, One passage the left loves to distort is at Matthew 25, 40, where Jesus says, when you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. Well, notice, first of all, it's when you've done it. It's not through taxing someone else. Yeah. Okay. But number two, it's done to the least of these, my brethren. And so what the left does is they distort that to say, see, we should take people's tax dollars, that people that work and give it to people who don't work or something to that effect. But if you take that passage seriously, it's to the least of these, my brethren. Yeah. And my brethren, of course, are believers. And so I've used this against the left. I said, well, there was a leftist Christian that I was talking to. He called himself a Christian. And he said, look, this teaches me that we should have a robust progressive tax policy. And I said, well, when it says the least of these, my brothers, you agree that, that those are believers. Are you also saying then that we have to Christianize the United States? Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the thinking in America is based on 19th century post-millennialism. 
Now, and sometimes there was a guy, how many of you remember Dillon? You don't know him. Native American who became my friend down at the old building on 24th and Nicollet. He knew that verse. I, I love Dillon, and he ended up helping us and protecting our building. But he came and he says, I need $20. I said, well, I, I'm not going to give you $20. Well, you have to because I'm one of the least of these, my brethren. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dila, go shovel the snow and I'll pay you for that. <laughs> but he ended up coming to the church and, and uh, becoming a friend. You just had to kind of know how he functioned, you know. Eric, quick question, and Bob. Uh, but social justice, isn't that term for redistribution, really? Uh, that it's used as a noble-sounding thing for us to embrace what's essentially Marxism. You can learn about this from Eric's two messages on, or was it one? No, he had a message on Marxism, and we, we rebroadcast it in two parts on our radio show. But it all goes back to the Hegelian synthesis, which I showed in my book on emergent. The, the idea is that everything's evolving into something better, some utopia, and we can help it along by embracing socialized everything. Yes. Oh, what's interesting is the Russian author Dostoevsky, he cites that the first communists or Marxists that wanted to redistribute were found at the Tower of Babel. And what's really interesting is that's where Marxism leads. It leads to building Babel and Babylon, whereas yeah. Christianity, you have the New Jerusalem. And it's really the quintessential battle between works and grace. Yeah, you want, really you want to listen to Eric's material. Now, let's go to fellowship. i got to make some progress because <laughs> Christy's going to really tire of always having the same handout every week. Let's make some progress here. Now, we want to talk about what Christian fellowship is. And when you see what it is, you'll realize how it really is a means of grace. 1 John 1, 3 and 4. What we have seen and heard. Now, 1 and 2 talked about Christ. I'll read that in a second. We proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father with his son Jesus Christ these things we write so that our joy may be complete so the apostles of our Lord who heard saw and touched him we'll read in a second are inviting those who believe into fellowship with them and with the Lord there is a fellowship that we have with one another with Jesus Christ, our head, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is Trinitarian fellowship. And in a way, that's not tangible right now, with all Christians, and in another way, with all Christians that ever were, the church universal and triumphant. Now, in some of the older theologies, you'll read about mystical union. Okay, and what that meant was it's not something that can be tangibly seen, but it's nevertheless real. I wouldn't use that term now because of all the mysticism that's come into the church. But I would agree with the meaning. 
we don't exactly see the tie that binds, but we have fellowship with the Lord and his people that's beyond what can be seen with our physical senses. But it's grounded in the objective. Please turn to 1 John 1, 1 and 1, 2. If you, you may already be there if you turn to 1 John 3. And let me read what happened or what, the, what was being discussed before this invitation to fellowship. 1 John 1, 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Let me stop right there. John is emphasizing tangibility and objectivity. If we didn't have the testimony of those who actually saw the resurrected Christ, that is, his apostles, then our unseen, quote, mystical union, unquote, could be with anything, and we wouldn't know the difference. So our unseen, spiritual, let me use that word, fellowship, we know to be valid based on the eyewitnesses who had the objective fellowship, okay? And his apostles, who actually saw, heard, touched the real Christ, proclaimed fellowship to us, So we believe based on their testimony. Jesus predicted those who will believe from your testimony. Now, if you didn't have that, you'd end up with the cosmic Christ. I just finished reading the second time through Matthew Fox's seminal book, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ. Fox is a new ager, wrote his book in the early 80s. But once you have a mystical Christ and you don't have apostles who are appointed by him, who saw him, touched him, heard him, and so on with their physical senses, you have nothing but a cosmic Christ who could be an imposter. So that's why John later in 1 John talks about the means of discernment is Jesus Christ come in the flesh. That's how you know the difference between Antichrist and Christ. So we have joy, we have spiritual blessing, and we have, in a sense, fellowship with the apostles. That one day, when we're glorified, we'll be face-to-face, objective, and tangible. Don't believe the people who come supposedly back from heaven and write books. I don't know why it is, but people tend to have trouble just believing the testimony of the apostles. But they'll believe some four-year-old or some whoever that went to heaven. We'll believe that, but we won't believe John or Peter or Paul. Now, I wrote an article about this way back in the 90s. And since I wrote my article, there's probably been 15 more of these books. It's a quick way to sell a lot of books because people want to know what heaven's like. And they don't believe the Bible is all we know. Now, when I wrote about it, I'd read Jesse Duplantis, who's a Word of Faith guy, and a few others, and uh, Kenneth Hagin, I mentioned, because he claimed to go to heaven. One of the things I noticed about these is that they'd run into, oh, another one was uh, Rick Joyner. 
that I was talking, this was in the 90s. Since then, there's a whole plethora of these books. And when they were talking, for example, Duplantis talks to David in heaven. And David was warning him not to believe all the Psalms because some some of them he wrote on a bad day. And Duplantis had a similar experience where Paul was apologizing for something. And so it seems like these guys who go to heaven talk to saints who are famous, who are denigrating the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Does that make you suspicious? Yes. Oh, hold on. When Paul was caught up into the third heavens and came back, he was commanded not to say anything. Yeah, he saw unlawful th- things that are not lawful for a man to utter. And, and he was given a thorn in his flesh so he wouldn't exalt himself. He was commanded definitely not to say anything. You're right, Michael, and, and I pointed out in my article. When did the rules change? We need to take sola scriptura seriously. What we know about heaven, we know through scripture alone. Fellowship is grounded in the objective reality of Christ, who revealed himself to his chosen apostles. It says what we have seen and heard. One thing that we know for sure about fellowship from the Greek is that it's grounded and based in the idea of common, koinos, koinonia, common. As Christians, we have things in common with one another that we don't have with anybody else. Now remember, in Acts 2, Peter, when he was preaching, said, be saved from this perverse generation, Right? So those who gathered in Acts 2.42 were, in a sense, saved from their, their rebellious former friends. Now they no longer have in common what they had in common before. Okay, so they're saved from the perverse generation. Now, they do have something in common with one another. So koinonia, from the root koinos, which means common, describes something that we have with Christ, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, and with one another that we don't have with the world. The reason we need to gather as the Lord's flock is that this is a means of grace. And so as we encourage one another and admonish one another to love and good works, God is giving us grace. It's not so easy as a checkoff list. I wrote an article about a book I read about curse breaking, that curses were the reason we have problems in our lives. And every page almost in this book had a list of things that you had to go expunge from your house or utterances to say to break curses. Then you'd check off the list. Well, by the time you got done with the book, you had this huge list of all the things you checked off. But in the process, you've gained this belief that some unseen curse from the past is the reason you have problems now. False teaching always points us to something besides the finished work of Christ. When we gather with one another, we're pointing 
each other to Christ. And it's what he's done for us, not what we imagine we're going to do for him. God resists the proud. Well, I'm going to do this, 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 and this. No, God resists the proud. He did this and this and this. God gives grace to the humble. Does that make sense? Good. Thank you. So could you say when believers are together, and let me throw in for whatever reason, we are never out of fellowship? Yeah, the the mystical union that the theologians talked about 100 years ago is still true no matter what. We are joined to the Lord and one another. But as a means of grace, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. This does not say that we cannot be together with other believers to watch the gopher game. Good. (laughs) You might need a believer around to give you solace after the fact, right? But neither does it indicate that just having church activities, which are commonly called fellowship, is what was being talked about here in Acts 2.42 or 1 John chapter 1. Does that make sense? And often we prefer to do things with Christians. But on the other hand, doing things with non-Christians is how the gospel spreads. We're not a separatist religion like Judaism was. And so the gospel spread through the testimony of Christians. I have some more to say about this here. And then we're going to transition a little bit into the idea of light and darkness. Dr. Aiken from the New American Commentary on 1 John says this. Second, the reality of this fellowship is shown in the readers walking in the light as God is in the light. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. Loving one's brothers and sisters in Christ is in turn evidence of being in the light. It is the equivalent of knowing God. And he has references because God is love and Christian love originates from God. This fellowship then is nothing less than a fellowship in the light and in love. We walk in the light and we love one another. Thus we have Christian fellowship. I love that. And there's no doubt that it's true. As a new Christian, I ended up in Bible college, and I immediately was found a, a home Bible study to join. And we had things in common. Aiken continues, In summary, faith in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus the Christ, transfers one from the realm of death to life, from darkness to light. And this life that now one now possesses through faith makes his presence known by means of the love that a Christian has for his fellow Christians. Fellowship with the Father and his Son then is essentially the same as having eternal life. Let's go briefly into Hebrews. And we find here that one another is important in keeping us from backsliding, to say it quite bluntly. You want to not backslide, you need the flock. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Take care, brethren, 
that there not be in any one of you, notice the individual's important, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today. So that, okay, there's a purpose clause. None of you will be hardened. Notice any one of you, and then none of you, by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the things that's true about Christian fellowship is that we don't stand by idly as we see Satan picking off one of us. Do you know what I mean? This is where Christian church discipline comes in. Church discipline isn't to get a pound of flesh, so to speak, and punish somebody so we feel better. It's to restore the fallen brother or sister. This is found in Matthew 18. It's found in 1 Corinthians 5. And so fellowship, if somebody is stumbling and falling away from it, falling away from the Lord, it says this in Galatians, you that are spiritual, restore such a one. We are not to just say, oh, well, I never liked that person anyhow. Wouldn't that be bad if somebody's falling? And we need to bring them back for the sake of their soul that we just let them go because we don't like them. That's not a Christian attitude. So we need to guard the, pre- the precious fellowship that we have with the Lord and his flock. It's precious to us and precious to the Lord. We encourage one another according to the truth of the gospel. It says in Psalm 106, 24 and 25, Psalm 106, 24 and 25, then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but grumbled in their tents and did not listen to the voice of the Lord. It's pretty bad when you don't want to hear the word. Oh, we've heard it all before. Remember what Rick Warren said? We don't need another Bible study, or most Christians don't, because they're not doing everything that they already know. Well, then he uses this instruction manual. So he doesn't believe in means of grace at all. He believes in works. So how do you repair a car from the instruction manual? You read, you turn the right nuts and bolts, and you get the car working. But how does God work in the church? Through precious Christian fellowship. The word of God is a means of grace. It isn't simply a cognitive what nut or bolt to turn. It's more... The other, Luann, over here. I was just going to say that, you know, one of the things it seems like is the church has jettisoned the word of God, like you're saying. And instead, we have people speaking for God. And um, I had the misfortune last Sunday to visit a church where that was the, the minister the whole time was referring to how God spoke to him, God spoke to him, God spoke to him. And, you know, people don't have the word even in their lap to compare. And, you know, it's just, it's just so sad. Yeah, and books where God supposedly speaks to them. So millions like Jesus Calling. The other day, I, I, I don't like to only read heresy books because I read them to, in order to write articles or be prepared for CIC radio. So I pulled out a book I read before, but not for 10 years. And I got all excited. James Montgomery Boyce, 
whatever happened to the gospel of grace? If you're not familiar with the five solas, this is a good starting point. And it, it takes all five of the solas and has a short chapter on each one. It says, Rediscovering the Doctrines that Shook the World. Excellent book on the five solas. If you go to, to the Gospel of Grace Fellowship website, or right on the front page are the five solas. And so here is, uh, I'm rereading it because I have to sit at medical appointments and I like to do something constructive with my time, so I'm reading now about the five solas again. So that should be baseline for our fellowship. We are called Gospel of Grace Fellowship. So there's a book about Gospel of Grace. The default position is works. The biblical position is grace. Grace alone. You know where I find the alones mentioned is in reading Luther. I was reading more Luther this week. I love, he is so funny. I've been sending Eric some of the stuff I find in Luther. In one address, Luther says, Dear Junker Pope. <laughs> Mr. Junker Pope. And so I thought, well, what does he mean by Junker? So I looked up Junker in a complete works of Luther. It's bad. <laughs> I didn't have cars, so he couldn't mean a Junker car, but I think it's like worthless junk. Toss out. Dear Junker Pope. And then he rebukes the Pope for taking away Christian liberties that God gave us. I love Luther. Let's go to the next slide here. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. Now we want to talk about light and darkness in regard to Christian fellowship. 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message that we've heard from him and announce to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Remember, we're studying means of grace. All right? So we walk in the light, and the blood is cleansing us. Continual present tense in the Greek. We're continually being cleansed. We're being reminded that we have the priesthood of every believer. We're being reminded that we have the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in our time of need or in timely mercy and grace for our need. It's another way to translate that. It's so fantastic that we have one another and we have the Lord and we have the light of the gospel. Did you know that the world is lying to you constantly? Does the world ever stop lying to you? No. Does the world support the gospel? No. Because the world is in darkness. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, according to later in 1 John. So conversion is described in the Bible 
as going from darkness to light. And if you want to turn with me, I'll read it. And you want to know this verse. I've preached on it three or four times in the last so many months. But as I've said before, you can't really wear out a verse. It will stay there, still speaking to us from God forever. Acts 26, 18. This is Paul reporting what Jesus said to him. Acts 26, 18. Jesus sends Paul for this mission. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So look at all the theology here. So much for the theory that you've got to dumb everything down for your audience. Who was Paul talking to? Does anybody know? In Acts 26? Agrippa, wasn't it? A king. Do you think that king came with a built-in knowledge of theology? No. But Paul told him the truth anyhow. Certainly the king could understand darkness and light, Satan and God. I don't know what all he knew. But this is what Jesus told Paul his gospel ministry was about. Turning from darkness to light, forgiveness of sins, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified. So there you have Christian fellowship. So if you compare that to 1 John 1 verse 5, this is the message we've heard from him. Announced to you that God is light. So when you turn to God, you turn to light from darkness. In him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship but walk in darkness, walk meaning the way we behave, the way our life goes. If you're attracted to the darkness and you don't have a taste for the light, what would you think about yourself? Not saved, right? If you're really a converted person, you've got to have a love for the light because you were turned from darkness to light. All right? And if we say we have fellowship and we'd rather go to the bingo meeting than the prayer meeting, there's a problem. So there is the gospel It continues in 1 John 2. Let me just read it for the sake of time. 1 John 2, 9 and 10. The one who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Notice the importance of fellowship. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. We love the brethren. We love the light. We encourage one another to stay in the light. It says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So it's one of the consequences of the light of the gospel. And secondly, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin, from all sin. Dr. Aiken again says, in summary, faith in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus the Christ, transfers one from the realm of death to life, from darkness to light, 
in this life that one now possesses through faith makes his presence known by means of the love a Christian has for his fellow Christians. Wow. That's what it looks like. This is just what it looks like when the five solas are central. We love one another. The blood of Jesus is cleansing us from sin. Our sins are forgiven. We don't let someone fall away and just say, ho-hum, who cares? We go to rescue the perishing. That's just what it looks like. You know, the more I study, which I've been doing since the early 70s when I became a Christian and enrolled in Bible college, the more the gospel is pretty simple, practical, basic, and instructive. Nothing more practical than the gospel itself. Dr. Aiken continues, failure to persevere in his faith Faith is by implication to exclude oneself from the apostolic fellowship, fellowship with God the Father and his Son and eternal life. Now, Jesus talked about this. I'll close with this one. This is John 3, 2021, 20, and then Dr. Carson's, D.A. Carson's comment on it. John 3, 2021. 20, for everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Dr. Carson says, quote these verses, John 20 through 21, John 3, 20 through 21, do not tell us how one moves from darkness to the light, that is how one becomes a true disciple, a Christian, but simply focus on the fundamental distinction that must be made between those who at the moment are rejecting the ultimate revelation of God in Christ Jesus and those who are delighting in it. The one follows his course because his deeds are evil. The other follows his course not because his deeds are righteous, but because it longs to show that his deeds have been done through God, wrought by God. A sign of true conversion is that we delight in Jesus Christ who is the source of all true spiritual light. And if you get sick of hearing about Christ, that's bad. (laughs) Then you're delighting in darkness because he is light. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you For the fellowship you've given us, may we endeavor to preserve it and walk in light, which is indicative of true fellowship. And thank you that your blood cleanses us from sin. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.